0: Barack Obama, Barack Obama. This is where I came in. This is perfect. Testing. Testing. Testing,
1: one, two, three. Here I am, <laughs> Including included. Oh, you mad. Oh, oh. You mad. You mad if that's a fool. Dark. It's ridiculous. Ghostly, so
2: beautiful haunting.
3: Alluvial fans Over
2: and over and over. Over and over again. It's
3: like nothing in the world. Clogging
2: Aspects of dandiacal. Decadent. Slander. I'd do
4: anything to get it back. Would you come with us, sir? Perform a world. Don't let dogs yawn. Perform a world. Crayolas. They're great.
1: Totally. Oh, totally.
4: They don't play purple. Totally thrilled. Let's just do it. You have me. Thank you.
5: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Andy's Treasure Trove, a collection of interviews and audio adventures focusing on art and culture. I'm your host, Andy Moore. In the background, you can hear the sounds of a film festival audience in the Castro Theater about to go into a kind of a time machine. In some of our past episodes, we've started to explore San Francisco as a city of seemingly countless film festivals. In this episode, I draw your attention to my absolute favorite film festival of them all, the San Francisco Silent Film Festival. It takes place over the course of one marathon weekend every summer, and they present films from the so-called silent era from all over the world. I'm sure that most of you know that silent films were never actually silent. It was just that instead of having a pre-recorded soundtrack actually attached somehow to the film, which they didn't know how to do at that time, movies were always accompanied by live music, ranging from a solo piano to a full orchestra. And in the case of many of the most grand movie palaces, the king of instruments, a theater pipe organ. The San Francisco Silent Film Festival is held at the Castro Theater, an old-time movie palace with a terrific Wurlitzer Theater pipe organ. This year, there were 11 feature-length films and lots of shorter films shown at the festival, and all of the films were accompanied by live music. In a moment, you'll hear my two short conversations with noted film critic and film buff Leonard Malton of Entertainment Tonight fame, and we'll listen in on his onstage conversation with Suzanne Lloyd, the granddaughter of cinematic genius Harold Lloyd. You've probably seen that famous picture of Harold Lloyd hanging for dear life onto the hands of a giant clock on a high-rise building, but his wonderful films were out of circulation for decades until granddaughter Suzanne restored them and made them available to the world again. I'll also be chatting and chewing with Canadian director Guy Madden, who was at the festival to introduce the spooky Todd Browning film, The Unknown. Then I'll be talking to pipe organ wizards Edward Stout and Clark Wilson and learn the important differences between theater pipe organs, like the one at the Majestic Castro Theater, where the Silent Film Festival is held, and other regular pipe organs. Also on this episode, we'll be hearing excerpts from performances of musical scores from some of the films, performed live at the Castro Theater just as they were intended to be performed back in the late 1920s, when the silent film experience was grand and glorious. Then throw in a couple of impromptu lobby discussions with other festival goers, and we've got a great podcast episode coming right up. Starting with Leonard Malton and Suzanne Lloyd on stage at the Castro Theater to introduce the hilarious comedy The Kid Brother by Harold Lloyd.
4: Hi, everybody. It's, it's such a, a privilege to be here uh, in this magnificent theater for this great event. And uh, first off, I've never seen a movie that big. Did you see that she was carrying you needed Biscuits? your little basket, you can read the, the labels on everything. Uh, it makes such a difference uh, to see a film this way. This film uh, is so, like all of his films, really, is so beautifully constructed, so carefully put together. But he learned a lot from his previews, didn't he? And he would go back and reshoot and re edit uh, to, to make it as perfect as it could be.
3: He was, uh, I don't know, personally, I know he was really a perfectionist kind of in a controlling way, Um, (laughs) but we won't get into that today.
4: This is a man who, when he he decided to take up bowling, bowled a 300 game, uh, and and that was with his prosthetic hand (laughs) he did that. So uh, he he was going to succeed at whatever he set out to do, that's for sure.
3: Along with his 3D photography, Mm -hmm. he took over 250,000 3D Photographs, so he was quite possessed and taken by that. I must say, you know, speaking about photography, he loved cameras and he loved shots, and he he was someone that um, they actually copied Ben Hur, the chase scene in Ben Hur after Girl Shy, because he come up with he loved to move cameras, and in early films they they really, you know really set a camera on a tripod and they didn't move a camera. They didn't figure out about you know dolly shots and. Of course, they didn't have Steadicams, but in Kid Brother, he came up with a don't, don't, don't give it away
4: too much. Oh, oh okay, okay. So S- the master, I'm not
3: going to say, say, say anything. Well, there's a wonderful shot, and it's an elevated shot, and it's a very sweet part of the movie, a romantic scene, and the and I think the elevation of the camera um, works very nicely,
4: and uh, I hope you enjoy it. But well, you, know, you know what's great about that shot? Are, how many people haven't seen The Kid Brother before? Just by, by applause. Well, we don't want to give that, Well, let's just say there is a, there's a, a rather spectacular uh, uh, shot in the film, but it's not a show-off moment. It's no. completely organic to the scene. It makes sense.
3: And you go with it, and then you think after you've seen it, well, you might be used to seeing it now in movies, But if you really think about it, it's like, oh my, that might have been the first time they have ever done that.
4: Are there any people here, and don't be embarrassed to admit this, because that's why this festival exists, are there any folks here tonight who have never seen a Harold Lloyd movie? (laughs) Second question, any folks here who have never seen a Harold Lloyd movie in a theater, on a theater screen? (laughs) Well, I don't think it's exaggerating to say you're in for a great experience and you're in for a treat, but one of the reasons that this is still something of an event when, when these films are shown. When I was growing up, a lot of other people were becoming enamored of, of, of old movies through television. His films were not on television. He kept them out of circulation for such a long time that his reputation I think suffered for a while because he just wasn't as familiar to people as Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton were. Uh, I think that has finally been remedied. Why did he not want his film shown on television? I'm sure you've heard him speak about that.
3: Yes, there were a number of discussions floating through the house on this <laughs> one. Um, no, actually, he felt that if you were going to make a movie and put that much time into it, and the timing of the writing and the gags and the setups, why in the world would you, as he said, why would I let somebody just come in and chop up my film and put in a car salesman's ad or a, you know, a soap commercial, and that was it. Um, so, you know, when he after he, when he passed on, you know, he didn't know about fabulous Turner Classic Movies, and you know, and and he didn't know about videos to come, DVDs. So when I had the opportunity to, I was restoring the films with UCLA um, Television, Film and Archive, and with David Packard and his foundation. And Harold had done a lot of the restoration of the films himself in the 60s, and we continued doing it into the 70s. When Turner was there, I was able, at that point, the films were restored beautifully, to be able to put on music. He wanted fresh new scores, he felt, to preserve them and to set them up for another generation, that they had to be encased with either live music, like we have tonight with the Montrose Alto orchestra, which is just wonderful to see a film like this with a live orchestration. But it was Turner that was able to give me the opportunity that I didn't feel guilty after hearing all the stories about the commercials, that I could place them on television and everybody could enjoy them.
4: Absolutely. A friend of mine attended a showing of this film in the late 60s at a class, at a UCLA film class. And he later described it and said that uh, the the, the students were not silent film buffs, to put it mildly. It was the hippie era. It was the counter-culture era. Uh, and they were, if not openly hostile, then certainly indifferent to the idea of watching this silent movie. And Harold Kane, at the invitation of the professor, and was there, said a few words first, and then the film played. And with each passing sequence, they became more and more engaged, more involved, and at the end, they absolutely cheered. They just, it was this prolonged ovation, and, and your grandfather said, well, I always liked <laughs> uh, and I think that, that sums things up pretty well so I, I hope that the folks here who have not seen it before or maybe have seen it but haven't seen it in this setting with uh, a giant screen and a beautiful theater with live orchestra uh, will appreciate it to its fullest
5: now I'd like you to hear some of the musical score of the Kid Brother played by the Mont Alto Motion Picture Orchestra I was having a hard time deciding on how best to represent the musical scores of these feature-length films on a short audio podcast like this one. So with the permission of the performers, I recorded portions of their musical performances, along with the audience's reactions to the films, from my seat in the theater. Then I edited together a two-minute condensed audio montage of the score to play it for you now. I realize that this is a total recontextualizing and transforming of the original material, and I do it with great respect for and, and tribute to, as a matter of fact, these great artists. It seems like the best way to give you a flavor of what it sounds like to experience a movie like this under these wonderful circumstances. So here's my two-minute condensed audio montage from The Kid Brother, a wonderful comedy from 1927 made by and starring the great Harold Lloyd. So what do you think? Is it too weird just listening to the music from a silent movie and the people who are watching the movie without actually seeing the movie itself? (laughs) Or is it just weird enough? Let me know by using our new listener call-in line, which you'll find on the new webpage on andystreasurtrove.com called Participate. And now, here's my first short conversation with Leonard Malton, who had just finished signing dozens of books and speaking to fans in the lobby of the Castro Theater your descriptions were ones that seemed more the most apt to me and your rating system I could rely on more so early on you became my you know my reference for, well, I'm, for I'm movies glad. on TV Thank you. and I was wondering if you
4: actually wrote all those or read all those descriptions because no one person could do that book I wouldn't think it's just not feasible I've always had a team of people, and they've always gotten credit on the title page, so I'm uh-huh. not trying to fool anybody. Oh, right. Uh, I'm the editor, but I'm also a chief contributor, you, uh-huh. know, I, I, you know, I've written, I don't know, a half, almost a half of that book. Wow. So, uh, it's a lot of movies. I'll say. But the, there's a certain consistency. Um, well, that's my hard. job as editor, uh-huh. is to try to give it a consistent tone, even when I'm not writing, you know, the actual review. So how
5: many times do people ask you what your favorite film is, and
4: what what tends to be your answer? A lot, and my answer is consistent. It's Casablanca. It's my all-time favorite movie.
5: Now let's hear my chat with Guy Madden, the Canadian director of My Winnipeg and The Saddest Music in the World, as we grab a snack together between screenings at the Silent Film Festival. Guy was here to introduce The Unknown, a spooky and strange 1927 classic by Todd Browning and starring Lon Chaney Sr. and Joan Crawford.
0: Actually, you know, interviews with mouths full is kind of a novel idea. Well, here we go. <laughs> Let's nosh. Yeah, those between are all Between like... pictures, I'm starving. Um, um, these masterpieces work up an appetite. No, I live in Winnipeg, Canada, but I just come to San Francisco whenever I can. There's the Noir Fest, the, the International Film Festival, and this wonderful silent film festival. So here I am. I have friends
5: from out of town, and they see all these things that are happening in San, in San Francisco, and they say, well, surely you went to this and that and the next thing, and you can't, you can't do everything.
0: Uh, I think it, when you actually live in the town where all these things happen, you tend to do nothing. So, <laughs> I know that's happened to me whenever i actually spent time in, say, Toronto or New York, where I've been from the outside drooling for years, and then finally get there, and you, know, you just stay in and, you know, Google up stuff all night long. No no man I, I'm just I've always been kind of apathetic and a really bad traveler you know, I'll stay in and watch CNN endlessly looping when I go to some exotic country but I came specifically for the Seattle I mean the silent film Festival it has nothing to do with Seattle this time but uh, I want to find out about your thoughts on the unknown give me a little preview of what you're gonna to say tonight when I'm gonna be asleep in bed um, I I, I, I Love that film. I, I actually teach a little course in melodrama back home, and I usually open the semester with the Unknown because it perfectly illustrates my uh, definition of melodrama, which is not uh, real life. Exaggerated, but real life uninhibited, and nothing could be more uninhibited than a Lon Chaney, Todd Browning picture. And there's some real stuff going on, some boilerplate human emotions that we all experience going on in that film, you know, basic jealousy and, you know, self-castration, all those things that we all feel or desire. Yeah, it's, uh, I like to just sort of sit out in the house and imagine the sound of self-castration. That's the magic of silence. You know, everybody can sort of just project his okay. or her own self-castration. Well, we're going to get off this topic and back to the Thank unknown. Yeah. Lon Chaney,
5: The Unknown. A lot of people know Lon Chaney Jr., The Wolfman. Yeah. Fewer people are familiar with Lon Chaney. Uh, senior? What you, yeah. Senior, which yeah. I
0: was going to call him uh, The Phantom of the Opera or yeah. Hunchback of Notre Dame. Right. Um, yeah, no, this, this might be his best movie. It's a, got a great story that just seems airtight and he's got a great leading lady uh, opposite him Joan Crawford uh, Lucille Lassure Sueur uh, and uh, I don't know and, and the thing just seems I've I am this character in this movie I've 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 removed my arms to get at women that don't like to be touched you know I' I've, I've I don't know I just I just he just opened a door wide for me to drive right in and uh, and occupy the picture, and, and and he gets what he deserves for that kind of being that kind of backdoor man. Um, I don't know. I'm not going to talk about this before the movie tonight. I'm just going to let people watch the darn thing. But uh, I, I don't know. It just it just really does it for me. Lonch. I, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. Uh, Lon Chaney Jr. is fine, um, but Lon. You know, he's any. He, I'm sure he was tortured his entire life. For an, not being as good as his dad (laughs) but you know his dad's a a, a genius and immortal and and Lon Chaney Jr. is wonderful in a different world altogether. Well I hope he was tortured all the way to the bank. Uh, Yeah I don't know if he was judging from a couple of his last pictures but you you know what that's just fine Uh, his torture is our pleasure. Yeah he's pretending to have removed his arms. He's in the penalty where he removes his legs or actually a, a sort of a crummy doctor accidentally removes his legs and he spends the rest of the picture uh, in one subplot exacting revenge by seducing the doctor's daughter uh, but yeah, there's these great allegories of dismemberment that um, it's best for little kids to just and they can enter into these things they don't take things so literally they, they just take them at a, at a sort of a feeling level and they seem I'm sure they seem to understand um, that Uh, What I like about Lon Chaney movies is that he's both sympathetic and evil at the same time. Like, you're still pulling for him because he's just so hard done by... He is an unbelievably malevolent underdog somehow, whereas most evil guys have the upper hand for most of these melodramas and and are eventually vanquished. But he's an underdog all along and evil, but you're just pulling for him to just pull out of that nosedive into hell and, and right himself, but he almost... Never does. Um, sometimes he does. There's laugh, clown, laugh. Seems to me he, he kind of does. That's where being cuckolded, um, the feelings of being cuckolded manifest themselves in a clown tying a roller skate to a, the top of his head and and um, and skating down uh, a tightrope that's actually sloped at a 45 degree angle into. The ground. And he sort of, sort of. I don't know. It sort of duplicates visually the feeling we all have upon being cuckolded. I don't know. That sinking feeling. Yes, that sinking skate on the head, <laughs> head on the tightrope uh, feeling. Yeah. Great image. Great image. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what? Do you have a favorite film? Favorite film of all time, or favorite Chaney picture? No, favorite, favorite film of all time. Maybe. Um, Maybe La Talante from the silent era, maybe uh, The Last Laugh, mm. um, although uh, La Rue, uh, which I've just seen recently, just just restored, or at least as restored as it'll ever be, probably, uh, at four and a half hours. I like Gantz, Abel Gantz, quite a bit. Uh, uh, I like Days of Heaven, because it seems like a silent movie with talking just sort of throwing in as an incidental sound effect now and then
5: that's right and it's yeah. kind of a grand underdog because of its you know interesting history and fate
0: yeah and and it's also uh, shot in canada so i get a get to wave a little patriotic canuck flag there and all uh, canadians get like a nickel a year from the royalties from that film right we do we do um it's and, and it keeps our gas prices just that much uh lower what's your favorite flavor of ice cream uh, you know, I, I, I just, uh, there's a million to choose from, but I'm kind of a chocolate guy. You know, it sounds, it sounds very interesting, but how about yours? Uh, mint chip. Wow. I don't know, mint chip, I had to try that. You haven't tried mint ice cream with chocolate chips in it? No, it sounds kind of frightening does well, it have like, hair in it or something? Or?
5: Uh, no, only if it's handmade in, in, under unhygienic <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, conditions. Okay. Uh, but no, this is a, a major flavor that you'll find in many uh, stores uh, across our great land, and the, you, probably pretty easy to find. The trick is to find it without the green dye. You want to use the Haagen-Dazs, or a higher quality okay. that doesn't have the
0: greenness. Well, go figure. i got to move down here, I think. Oh, if you haven't eaten mint chip, you haven't lived. Well, I'll, con- I'll consider it. Um... Uh, when, when deciding where to move when I finally escaped my hometown. Um,
5: is there anything else that you'd like to tell the audience, the listening audience of Andy's Treasure Trove?
0: Um, geez, yeah, I guess I, I feel thoroughly chastised. Don't be so closed-minded. Go for the m- mint chip. I don't know. Uh, it's Before it's too late. Next thing he'll be eating tutti-frutti, I just know it. <laughs> thanks, Guy Madden. Well, Thanks, Andy,
5: for opening, opening my mind up. Have fun tonight. <laughs>
0: okay,
5: well, do. Now, here's my next two minute montage from the score and audience reaction to the 1928 French comedy Two Timid Souls. Now, certain people have advised me that some of the listeners will get bored and tune out after the first 15 seconds or so, these two minute evocations of the actual scores. But I would rather have most of you fast-forwarding to the end of a musical segment than have one person who's really getting into it feel that I sold out to the short attention span contingent of my listenership. So I hope that some of you can relax and enjoy about two minutes of the sound of about 2,000 people watching the 1928 French comedy Two Timid Souls, accompanied brilliantly by Odile Laveau and the Baguette Quartet. And I dare you not to feel like smiling at least once during the next two minutes. For us, the Baguette Quartet isn't based in Paris. They're based just across the bay from San Francisco in Berkeley, California. And we're so lucky to have them close by. You can check out their music via the link provided on andystreasuretrove.com on the page for this episode, episode number 10. Now let's listen in on a couple of conversations that I had out in front of the Castro Theater after the screening of Two Timid Souls. First with writer Patrick Hocktel, and then with filmmaker Natalia Vekic, who was working for the festival as house manager that evening. So this is Patrick Cocktail. We just uh, saw the same movie. Uh, Dude, Meade, René Clair. Yeah, a silent film from France from 1928. And I was His about, last silent film. And I was about to say that silent films from uh, other countries always seem to me more realistic, more human. The acting seems more naturalistic even though it's exaggerated by today's standards. It just seems maybe it's just cuz it's different, but in foreign films it just seems more realistic somehow.
2: I think that's true and Especially in the details, you know, in Hollywood films, even in that time, it's so much glamour to them. And and in these films, uh, you know, they have very rough surfaces and everything is not so highly glossed. Uh, You know, even though this film had some really... Nice interiors and things like that. They also, you know, shows things that are scruffed up and broken down, and you know, you just get an overall sense of country life and a um, different kind of reality than you got from Hollywood at the time.
4: So,
5: have you seen a lot of other films, and do you have a favorite so far during the festival? This particular festival, this is the first
2: one I've seen. I'm going back to see <laughs> *The Man Who Laughs*, and I'm going to see the Colleen Moore film tomorrow. Her Wild Oat. oat, Yeah. (laughs) Even the title's funny. And then the evening one. I was here at 10 o'clock for the film preservation presentation, and it was a full house. I mean, 10 a.m. The Patsy, that's the Marion Davies one. That's the last one I'm going to see tomorrow. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. I want to see that one, too. I think Jack's going to come to see that one, too. Oh, great. So that was full, the preservation. Yeah, 10 in the morning. That's great. And it wasn't
5: even... Oh, there's Jack right there. It wasn't even a film. Speaking of Jack... So, uh, do you have anything more to say about silent film to my Andy's Treasure Trove listening audience? Well, just that I think that
2: preservation of silent film is really important. I think that, you know, our, our early film, so much of it has already been destroyed, and I, I really do think it is the art form, especially of the last century, and to try to get people to see it and uh, as preserve as much of it as possible is really important. What do you
5: think about people who don't care about silent films, don't care about black-and-white films?
2: Well, you know, most of those people, you know, I've gotten some of that attitude when I used to teach and I used to show films and some of the students, you know, would groan if it was a black-and-white film, if it was a Hitchcock film or whatever. And I think most of the people with that attitude just haven't been exposed to it. Once they are, their attitude, from what I've you know observed, their attitude seem to change a lot. I mean, you know, quality is quality, and uh, I think that will always tell in the long run. It's just getting people to see it in the first place. Plus, you don't get an A in your class if you if you won't see the film. Not mine. <laughs> Patrick, thanks for talking to me. See you
5: with the next film or two. Great. Looking forward to it.
4: So.
3: Ready
5: to go. So, Natalia, how's the film festival going for you?
3: Well, since I just started. 45 minutes go great wonderful (laughs) I'm actually what's your favorite
5: film so far
3: (laughs) the one I haven't seen yet Uh I'm so looking forward to the what's the seven o'clock show
5: the man who laughs yeah
3: that's gonna be good and after seeing like all the stills for um Batman and the Joker you can kind of see the lineage Uh from that to the Joker yeah
5: then I caught up again with Leonard Malton and asked him about his favorite encounter with a celebrity. Let's listen to that now. My favorite celebrity sighting ever was Cary Grant, and I was wondering if you had a favorite celebrity sighting or meeting
4: in your life. Oh, well, yeah, when I was 13 years old, uh, 14 years old, uh, a friend and I, uh, I lived in New Jersey, in the suburbs of New York City, and a friend and I were going to go and spend the day in Manhattan, and that morning... The New York Times arrived on our doorstep. and I opened it up, and there was an article about the fact that Buster Keaton was making a film based on a Samuel Beckett uh, script, and they were shooting it uh, in downtown Manhattan, uh, alongside a dilap quote, alongside a dilapidated warehouse in the shadow of the Brooklyn Bridge unquote. And I said to my friend this is a once in a lifetime opportunity, we have to go. So we took the subway down to Canal Street and emerged from the depths and looked around, a lot of vacant lots and we looked, like two, three blocks over, there was a vacant lot, we saw a reflector and a light. We walked over, there was no security, there was no crowd, there was no nothing. And I had brought a still that I had just bought for 25 cents of Keaton and I didn't know what the film was, but I brought it along and we looked and sitting in the back seat of a car, reading a newspaper with his pork pie hat on the seat next to him was Buster Keaton. Uh And I sort of poked my head and said, Mr. Keaton, he said, yeah. I said, hi. I said, "Uh, I just found this still, but I don't know what it's from. Can you tell me? And I had a little conversation with Buster Keaton and he signed my still, so nothing can top that. Wonderful, wonderful. Do you know why Vera Ellen never showed her neck? No, I don't. And I'm sorry not to be able to solve that pressing uh, question. And what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Oh, well, I'm a chocolate guy, but lately I've been I've been uh, going for different mixtures. So uh, try mint chip, mint chocolate. Uh, oh, I, chip. Like, I, I like mint chip. I like mint chocolate. Chip. I just
5: spoke to Guy Madden. He said he never heard of it. Oh, I've he had said, mint He said maybe chip. I've been in Canada too long. Yeah, maybe so. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. I really appreciate it. All right, bye. Bye. A nice guy and a good story much better than my Cary Grant story because I didn't even get to talk to Cary Grant. I just saw him eating dinner one night across the room when I dined at the Magic Castle, a restaurant and magic club in Hollywood. Well, now I have the distinct pleasure of sharing with you my conversations with Edward M. Stout and Clark Wilson. Ed Stout is responsible for the installation and maintenance of several major pipe organs in the Greater Bay Area. And Clark Wilson is the wonderful organist who really wowed audiences with his tremendous dramatic score for the film... The Man Who Laughs, and his hilarious score for a fun comedy called The Patsy during the festival. Let's talk to Ed and Clark now.
1: I'm Edward Millington Stout. And you were just telling me that you've been installing pipe organs and working with theater pipe organs for over 50 years. That's right. Tell me a little bit more about it. In the late 50s I maintained, did all the concert tuning for George Wright at the San Francisco Fox Theater. And then when the Fox came down in 63 we moved up to the Paramount Theater and I did all of his work there. And um, I also maintained the organ in the Golden Gate, which was a three-manual Wurlitzer. see in the church organ side or concert organ side, I was curator of musical instruments at Grace Cathedral for 42 years. I retired from there four years ago. And um, Dick Taylor, my associate, and I have installed many, many Wurlitzer organs, including the one you're hearing tonight. In fact, the Taylor family owns the Wurlitzer in this theater, and we installed it 30 years ago. So someone else other than the theater owns the organ. The Taylor family owns the organ. And uh, the Taylor family and uh, some volunteers and myself, we installed it 30 years ago when Mel Novikoff was the uh, entrepreneur here. Then, uh, let's see, in recent years, um, 20 years ago, we installed the Wurlitzer in the Stanford Theater for Mr. Packard. And more recently, the, a large Wurlitzer in the California Theater in San Jose. And we're maintaining all those instruments. I didn't realize that there was a, an installation in San Jose. I'll bet you better believe it. The theater was restored at a cost of some nearly $80 million. It's beautifully, beautifully restored, back in its original glory. And we installed a 21 rank Wurlitzer organ. The same size organ as you have here in the Castro Theater. Mm-hmm. I used to go to the concerts at the Paramount all the time. and really love that <laughs> instrument. Well, that's a fine instrument. The Paramount's a very fine instrument. They're very different because the rooms are different. Mm-hmm. That's a very live and barney kind of a sound. Uh, this is a very articulate and clear sound. They're basically the same size organ. and You can't say one's better than the other. Uh, This is considered one of the finest Wurlitzers in the country. I mean, it's pretty much legendary in that respect. I like organs that have a lot of presence. Mm -hmm. And this organ is one because there's not much obstructing the sound. Mm -hmm. The grill is very open Mm -hmm. and the chambers aren't terribly deep. I see. So the sound that's produced from the pipework gets out into the room. Uh But every pipe organ, that's the, the unique thing about pipe organs, in contrast to these electronic imitations. The pipe organ, each one has a living soul. It's different, very different, and uh, because the pipes were slightly voiced differently, and they're speaking into a different acoustical environment. Yeah, as you mentioned, the room is actually part of the instrument. It's about 60%. Hmm. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. It has a lot to do with it. But we're blessed here in the Bay Area to have so many organs. Uh, it's, it's very unusual to have this many playing theater organs. I and mean, this one's played every night. Mm-hmm. The Grand Lake is played on the weekends. The Stanford organ, which is a superb organ. The organ in the Stanford Theater is gorgeous. That's played twice every night of the week. Here's Clark Wilson. There he is. I really appreciate talking to you. You're quite welcome. Hey, Clark.
5: Clark Wilson, I heard an amazing performance of yours last night. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm assuming it's going to be the same tonight. A whole different style, of comedy. A whole different style. Um, tell me how you work up a score for one of these ancient movies. I know that you find pieces and
6: you know some of the music that was played at the
5: time, but there's probably a lot that you have to add and choose yourself.
6: Personally, I follow the same pattern that the theater organists of the 1920s typically did. You had three choices of what to do in those days. You could either try to play a full score that might come with the picture. Those were relatively rare, but 150 pages of music would show up, and you're supposed to play this for tomorrow's show. You're supposed to keep an eye on the organ, an eye on the music, and an eye on the picture. Little chance that it's going to happen, particularly with five shows a day and changing the title of the picture three times a week. Where do you you hide your third eye? I'm looking for it. Exactly, exactly. Same thing. Nothing's changed. The other way was you could just say, okay, fine, I'll just sit down for two hours and improvise and see what happens. Well you know unless you're some sort of stupendous composer there's little chance that it's going to be memorable that way that anything's really going to happen or that you'll be able to reconnect things at the end of the picture with the beginning of the picture through the thematic music. Right. The third way was the cue sheet and that more often than not was what uh, what came with a the picture. There was uh, a sheet that suggested certain music and gave you the t- uh, titles or action as it went along. It was a road map for mm-hmm. you and you could see what the action for the whole picture would be. Typically, most musicians did not have maybe all of the music that was suggested in that, but they would find parallel numbers in their library, and their libraries were extensive in those days. Uh, They used anything they could get a hold of, opera music, ballet music, transcription music, popular music, you name it. And, and, uh, and made up a good deal of it in between. So I follow that particular pattern. I go through the picture, I try to get some ideas, uh, match the action to perhaps themes or specifically a style of music that I think fits that action, that will just heighten that action and add a little bit to it. Uh, I put those all together, I write the lead lines out just like they did in a cue sheet. Um, for instance, last night's picture, which was a two hour picture, uh, I had a nine page cue sheet. For that written out with actions, uh, particular things highlighted where there's a specific cue. If a bell rings or something like that, that you want, you want the audience to hear that. You don't want to miss that cue or just play right through it. So those are highlighted in the score. And then uh, and, and the tunes also named, particular numbers and uh, whatever they are named to keep me on track and keep me moving forward. So hopefully it doesn't get boring and will not get into a rut. Are you mostly successful, or have you had nights when you went into the rut and couldn't get out? I shouldn't say anything before a picture. (laughs) (laughs) Thus far, in the playing that I've done in feature films, I have never had a situation where I got stuck, because I've never attempted a feature film without a cue sheet. I spend never less than about 18 hours getting ready for a picture, if it's it's maybe a 70-minute comedy. Something like Yesterday's Picture, The Man Who Laughs... Well, I worked on it on and off for eight weeks. So there was a good deal of preparation that went into that, including about three hours at the organ the afternoon of the picture, just working things up and actually at that point still going through and crossing out and saying, I just don't like how this is working. And that's time spent here at the console? It was not at this console, but it was my, uh, my friend's house. He's got a small pipe organ in the house. So it was an ideal situation to work there. And you could just uh, revise and, and sort of polish everything. Where do you, Where are you based? I'm based out of Ohio, a small town in Ohio. The principal theater that I play at is in Columbus, Ohio, uh, the Ohio Theater. It's, uh, well, as they marketed them in the day, the unit orchestra. It's a one-man band. And the king of instruments, too. It's the king of the king of instruments. The king of instruments is the organ, and we often think of the theater organ as the monarch amongst those because it's absolutely everything but the kitchen sink. You know, it's an organ, and it's an orchestra. It's a synthesizer. It's a traps Section—it's a marching band, you name it. There's just nothing that the organ, one of these organs, won't do. And I understand
5: that in addition to all the sounds it makes—that uh, say a, a non-theater, like a church organ, right—doesn't do that the the um, the volume being able to
6: change the volume is different from
5: other organs. Is that Are those the two primary differences?
6: Not between? changing the volume, really, so much. A, any organ that was ever built that's an artistic instrument has volume or expression to it. But these instruments are, ver- are voiced on what we call high wind pressure. They're uh, much, much higher, maybe five times, maybe, maybe more than that, of what an average church organ is voiced on. Uh, because they're, relatively speaking, a small number of pipes, a small number of ranks or sets of pipes that speak into the house. They need to be loud. They need to fill this room and beside that all of the percussions, the traps, and everything that go with it. So anything that happened on the screen, and that's why they were born, you would have a sound effect or something you could imitate and produce what you needed. The clever theater organist can create that out of his battery of things on the organ. Through certain combinations you can create things that don't exist on the console. There's nothing that says train or nothing that says cow mooing or cat meowing, but you can do it all.
5: So do you think that theater pipe organ music is
6: on its way down, on its way up, on its way out? I think it's, uh, particularly in the silent film department, I think it's on its way back up again. I think it's much more appreciated because we're far enough away from the first age now that people have said, My, this is a dynamic way of playing a picture.
5: Okay, well we are well, being we'll interrupted. Pick it up. And thank you very much. Thank, thank I you. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks. And now here is my very reverential two-minute condensed montage representing Clark Wilson's magnificent score for the man who laughs. a performance. In a future episode, we're going to be exploring more in the realm of theater pipe organ music and the people who play it, courtesy of some local organists who are keeping the flame of this unique kind of music alive. You can get on the mailing list of the San Francisco Silent Film Festival via a link to their website found on andystresuredrove.com on the page for episode number 10. And please do, because they have a special event coming up next month here in San Francisco. And please also explore the rest of my website. I'm always adding new things for you to look at and to do. And pretty please call our new listener call-in line and leave a message for me or for me to play on a future episode of Andy's Treasure Trove. Goodbye until next time. All rights reserved. Andy Moore and Treasure Trove Productions.